think we can all speak to something of the, uh, the awkwardness, the pain, the struggle, the experience of being in relationship with another person who really when you describe what is that relationship about, it's really all about them. It's, it's not, a lot, not a lot of fun. And as I said, it's, there's some pain there. There's some awkwardness there. You don't know how to quite to address it. It's, it's an ugly dance. You, you sort of feel like yourself, you're doing with that, that person, the relationship. It's so one-sided. You know how that goes. I mean, the, the conversations, the topics generally trend towards their concerns. That's what they want to talk about. And then if you, in fact, try to express something of the weightiness and the burdens upon your own heart, they find a way typically to interrupt and interject with some sort of something. And then, making matters worse, usually in such a dynamic, uh, you rarely hear from them. And, and, when they, and they take the initiative to move towards you. Usually, usually, that's a sign they need something of you. It's, it's difficult, right? Being in a relationship right, like that, where it's, it's so very, it's, it's one way. It's, it's, it's one way, it's, it's one-sided, and, and ultimately if you think about that long enough and steep in it long enough, you can begin to start to feel somewhat used and unloved. And I wonder, I wonder at times if God could rightly say that about us and our relationship with him. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 13, honing in on verses 9 and 10. Uh, If you're trying to to find Matthew's gospel, that's the first of the uh, gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 6. We're in what's oftentimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read again, as I said, Verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is, is good. It is sure. Um, we think of how David describes it in Psalm 19, and it's, it's that very dynamic that we are asking for now, that your perfect law would revive our souls, that your sure testimony, testimony would make wise a simple people that your right precepts would bring joy to our hearts, that your pure commandments would enlighten our eyes. Lord, your word, your commands, your rules are so sweet, desirable, better than any other word. We, We need you. We need you to be speaking to our hearts. As we've prayed a few times in this portion of our series, teach us to pray. We stand with your disciples then as they came to you asking that very question. And we ask that you would do that. Do that, please. You've made us, made us for this very thing. We ask that you would teach us. Amen. Well, okay, this is a, 
I said this to somebody who was asking me even yesterday. This is a series within a series within a series. We are in a series, a larger series, of the Gospel of Matthew. For the last few weeks, maybe months, I haven't counted, we are in, have been in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We are right now in a section within that on prayer. Uh, specifically, a passage that is oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus begins his teaching on that topic of prayer in the Lord's Prayer by telling us who it is that we are actually addressing and how we should understand who he is. Our Father in heaven. And oh, how we need that reminder. How we need that reminder to pause and reflect just who we are actually praying to. Uh, King Herod. King Herod, uh, back in the late B.C. Area, era and early A.D. era, um, he, uh, his expansion, his project of expanding the Jerusalem Temple, uh, of all his building projects there in Judea, was likely, this was his masterpiece. Uh, he began in 19 B.C. Over the course of years, some 10,000 skilled laborers were brought in on this project. The main bulk of the work was actually completed uh, in 6 B.C., just before his death. I said A.D., he actually died prior to that. Um, it was, the main part was finished in 6 B.C. It was actually not completed, this expansion of the Jerusalem temple, until 63 A.D., just a few six, seven years before the Romans came in to put down a rebellion and destroyed the entire thing. On the southern side of the uh, temple complex uh, where Herod spent all this time and effort uh, to do this expansion work, there's an area what's, re what's referred to as the Stairs of Ascent. And you can go and visit this today. And I was there about a year and a half ago. It's a stunning thing even in its ruinous state to see. It's, it's about 200 feet wide, these, these stairs, these stairs of ascent moving up. Now, the interesting thing about that is... Um, the irregular pattern of the width of the steps as you go up. You might, you might step up one step, and it might be about a foot wide, or a foot deep, I guess you could say. But the next one might be two feet. And the next one might be two and a half, and then the next one might be down to a foot. And you don't know. There's no discernible pattern as, to, as you're moving up in the width of these steps. So you literally have to watch your step and be careful as you're moving up, lest you, lest you might trip and fall. And guides will tell you that the reason that they think that there was, there was actually some, obviously some intentionality in this design is everything else with this, this temple. And it's quite possible that the designers of this section of the expansion of the Jerusalem temple had this in mind, to encourage the pilgrim as they were coming and entering into the temple precincts to pause and reflect with care as they were moving up to make their sacrifices. There's a principle there that we could apply right over to prayer. Right on over to prayer. Jesus speaks. He tells us who is it, who is it that we are coming to pray to. Our Father in heaven. And the, the reason so, he's, he's so clear and emphatic on that point is because who we pray to shapes how we pray and what we pray. Who we pray to, who does we understand that we are praying to shapes uh, how we pray and what we pray. So who are we praying to? Jesus says our Father in heaven. Jesus says we're praying to our Father in, in heaven. And that, as, to the degree that we're getting that, that's sinking down into our hearts, that will change the focus of our prayers. 
knowing that we are coming to our Father in heaven will change the very focus of our prayers. And you see that in the six petitions that he gives and the order in which he gives them, and again, what's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Those petitions are shaped by, molded by, impacted by that, uh, that uh, how should I say, that introduction, our Father in heaven. And we're just going to look at the first three uh, this morning. Uh, just the first three. Prayers regarding the name of God, the rule of God, and the will of God. And by the way, not ours. His. The name of God, the rule of God, and the will of God. Well, let's look at these in, in turn. First, the first request, verse 9, you can see it. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, there are some words here, there are some concepts here, some, some uh, verbiage here that's worth some explanation and some clarification so we can get our minds around this. What, what is the name of God? The name of God is more than just a, a word spoken or written, but the, the name of God is a reference to his character, who he has revealed himself to be. The name of God signifies and symbolizes God himself. It's, it's another way of expressing, of expressing that. Now, to hallow, that's not something, that's, but not hollow, hallow, hallow. What is that? We don't really use that in, in our everyday terminology. It is the verb form of the word holy. So what it basically means is to treat something or someone as holy or to, to revere them, to honor them in, in the way that, that they should be. So the prayer then is, you know, hallowed be your name. May God be hallowed. May he be honored. May he be revered. May he be treated in, in a way that is appropriate and given his due. But that then raises a question, doesn't it? Because isn't God already holy? I mean, isn't, isn't his name already lifted up and exalted over every other name? Yes, yes, but he is holy, but he is not hallowed. Do you see the difference? He is not honored. He is not revered. He is not esteemed. He is not given his due by his creatures. And so the prayer is that he would be. The prayer is then that he he would be. Hallowed be your name. May you uh, truly, may you be fully, finally, truly, rightly given the honor that is your due. I'm sure some of you are aware that in the news uh, it's been uh, revealed that the U.S. Treasury Department has said that they are over time going to be replacing the picture of Andrew Jackson with an image of Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. Uh, based on, I'll just tell you, my reading and my study on Andrew Jackson's contribution, shall I say, and that's a gentle way of putting it, to the Trail of Tears, and Harriet Tubman's contribution and initiative in the Underground Railroad, this is a good decision. I hate to burst you bubble, the bubble of some of you Tennesseans, but this is a very, very good decision. Harriet Tubman is getting the long overdue honor that is due to her. Now, I'm not, that's not hallowing. That's not quite the same thing, but you, you get the idea, you know, loosely speaking. Here. What would it look like for us to pray this way? What would it look like for us to, to pray, hallowed be your name? Something like, like this. Across this world, 
every nation, every tribe, every people, in the midst of his people, his church, his own, his followers, and, and beginning in my life, may he be revered. In all my thoughts and words and doings, may he be honored. There is a comprehensiveness here to, to the prayer in every arena that you can possibly imagine. And, and, not, and not just now, but one day forevermore. May he, his name, may God himself be hallowed, be honored, be given his rightful due. Jesus says, again, we are to pray to our Father in heaven. That shapes, that transforms, it shifts, it changes the focus of our prayers. And you see it here with this first request. Well, okay, moving on to the second request. Um, again, verses, verse 9, reading on into verse 10 now. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Again, I think there's a, a, some concepts here that are worth our just stopping, pausing, getting our, our heads around here before we go too fast, too far. So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of the kingdom? We, we've talked about this a few times in this series in Matthew, but it's been a little while since we explicitly stated this. This is really the, the essence, the, the summary of Jesus' message, the good news of the kingdom. Uh, the good news of the coming of the kingdom and, and the king, when you go back and read through, through Matthew. The, the idea of, of the, the sure restoration uh, of the rule of the king. The, the return of the king and his kingdom uh, over all. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, put it this way in a, in a very wonderful image. He said, enemy-occupied territory. And he's writing in the context, actually speaking, literally, and it was a transcript taken from a radio broadcast of BBC in, in early parts of World War II. So that's the, the, you know, keeping in mind Europe and, and the, the historical context when he speaks of enemy-occupied territory. All right, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That's the kingdom, the kingdom coming into this world. And this is not the first time Jesus has mentioned, actually, the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to chapter 5 and you read uh, verses 3 through 10 and the Beatitudes, this wonderful, almost poetic description of, of what the character of, of one of Jesus' followers is, is to look like and growing increasingly to, be, to, to become. Uh, you look at the, the, the bookends of those Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you skip down to the end, the other, other bookend. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a concept. It's something we would do well to, to dwell on quite, quite a bit. What Jesus is saying is that, that, that those who know their need of him and those who can see through the, the facades of the world's values and such that do not count their own lives so much that they are not willing to lay them down. Those are citizens of his kingdom. Uh, those are citizens of the kingdom and, and um, lovers of the king. Well, okay, so the prayer then here is, your kingdom come, may your rule 
and, and, and reign be increasingly and one day fully and finally felt and known across all this world. All, all this world. But of course that raises a question. You know, like last time I said, you know, isn't God already holy? Yes. Well, isn't he already the king? Yes. Um, isn't Jesus already described, in fact, as the king? I mean, isn't that what chapter 1 was about? Remember the genealogy? This was like last summer. Um, the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, where he's described as the son of David? And then you move on to chapter 2, and isn't that what the, the whole magi and the star and, and them coming with the gifts from the nations, bowing down? Isn't that what that's? Yes, that's exactly what. So isn't he our? Yes, he is the king. But he is not rightfully recognized and known as the king. Do you see? And so the prayer is that he would be. That he would be. Uh, you see, see, we live between the times. That the kingdom has come. It's, it's this, this paradox that you see all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. The kingdom, with the coming of Jesus, the king, the kingdom has come, but not yet in full. We live between the first and second comings of the king. Right now, we live in between these times, in, in these days, as the New Testament says, in the last days. That's what that's, that's referring to. So we pray, your kingdom come with a longing in our hearts that his kingdom would arrive and move forth in its influence through this world like the dawning of the sun piercing and dispersing the darkness of night. That's what this prayer is, is, is about. So how do we pray that way? We pray recognizing that to stand any of us in any way, in any way, in any, any, any creature, any, any, anyone, to stand in rebellion against the king to any degree, our creator, the one who designed and is made and fashioned, to stand in rebellion against him is ultimately self-destructive. And, and it brings into our lives, into life just in general, like wave upon wave upon wave of, of disintegration. And so with that in mind, we're longing then that, that the gospel message would go forth, this good news of the coming of the king and his kingdom, and, the, and this news, this wondrous, amazing news that our standing with the king and our security in his kingdom is grounded in this, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And our longing is that that message and all of its life-transforming, revolutionary implications would go forth where? In this larger world, across into all nations, piercing to every aspect of our society, moving and, 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 and instilling um, encouragement and courage in and amidst his people, us, and beginning where? Me. Your kingdom come here, here, in my heart. Your rule be manifested. My submission, my glad submission, my bowing before him with my whole self, my whole life. See, the comprehensiveness, again, every arena of life, and then, and then again, also that time factor, beginning now, but oh, our hearts aching for it to come in full one day then, and sooner rather than later. That's what this prayer is about.
your kingdom come. Jesus says, you're a prey to your heavenly Father. That has implications in how we pray. That has implications in the priorities and the, and, and the desires of our hearts, the focus of our prayers. Okay, the third request. So we have, we're praying for the name of God, we're praying for the rule of God, and lastly, well, thirdly, we're praying for the will of God. All right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, some clarifiers. What does Jesus mean when he says your... When he speaks of God's will. What, what, what does Jesus mean when he's speaking of, of that? There's two senses to, to this. Um, on the one hand, this is a, clearly a reference to God's sovereign will. That is to say, his will of decree, his eternal plans and purposes. May your will be done. Your plans purposes be carried out. By the way, how do you learn what those are? Find a history book. That's how you discover what the eternal plans and purposes of God are, what has happened. That's how we know for sure, at least thus far, what they are. Okay, so that's the, his, his sovereign will, but there's another sense in which you can, this is likely speaking, and that is his revealed will. His moral will, his commands, that which expresses something of his heart and his character. Now, where do you read about that? Well, right here in the pages of his word. So you have these two senses of the will of God, the, biblically speaking, the sovereign will of God, and the revealed will of God. So here's the question. Which one is it? Which one, Jesus, are you saying we should be praying for that should come on earth as it is in heaven? Now, I will tell you, commentators are split on this. I think it's both. I think it's actually both. I don't know that we need to dissect it quite so cleanly there. His sovereign will and his revealed will. So what would that look like? How would that play itself out in terms of, of praying? Well, in terms of his sovereign will being done, the shape of that would be that that would be our great desire, that we would not resist it. That um, we would gladly trust in what he is doing in our lives, and trusting ourselves no matter how uh, easy or unpleasant or what the circumstances may, may be, that we would trust in the goodness and care and, and love of our Heavenly Father such that we would be able to bear it and wait. And wait. May your will be done in that, in that sense. But there's also, okay, but what about your will be done in that revealed will sort of sense? Well, okay, again, that we would desire that and not resisting it. That, that again, wanting to, He is our Heavenly Father. We want to walk in His ways. We want to follow after Him. We want to uh, live in such a way that is pleasing to him, knowing that no matter what, he's already pleased with us. So we're studying his word all the time, to, individually and, and together, and, and delving into its implications, and bowing our knee, and, 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 and gladly submitting ourselves to what we find there. May your will be done in that sovereign sense, in that revealed sense, not resisting that, and, and you know, the pattern, right, on earth as it is in heaven. Um, freely, openly, eagerly. Think with me, how do the angels, how do the angels 
regard, the, God's revealed will and his decrees and purposes and plans. With, with hesitation? With, with resentment? With, 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 you know, well, you know, maybe Tuesday. No. Gladly, openly, freely, spontaneously, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your decrees come to pass. May your world, your commands be known and, and followed and, and loved. So how do we pray? What does it look like to pray this way? Fundamentally, it has a lot to do with trust. Coming back to, we're praying to our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. And, and the fundamental part of that is, is trust, whether you're talking about His revealed or sovereign will. Because when, when things are ugly, when things are hard, what's the temptation? The temptation is to want to seize the wheel. The temptation is to want to take control and to try and manage and manipulate the people and circumstances around us so that we can be God and that our will can be done. And the prayer is, no, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the, the, the name of God, the rule of God, the will of God to intersect with all these arenas of our lives. The job search, the health issue, the painful relationship, the struggle that I, I, I ongoing in my own heart with anger and lust and bitterness and resentment, discontentment in all of its ugly manifestations, that his name, his rule, his will would come, come to bear in all of those things. Oh, and also, by the way, in the life of that person who needs you, Jesus, which is also me, also me and you. Again, our view of God, back to where we started, our view of God shapes our prayers to God. Absolutely, absolutely. You want to know why it is you pray the way that you do? It has a lot, not everything, everything, it has everything to do, not just a little bit, but everything to do with your view of who God is. Your view of who God is absolutely shapes and forms your prayers to Him. If you, if you see Him as a distant God, uninvolved, then you will pray little, if at all, and your heart won't be in any of it. If you see Him as a dispenser at your disposal, like a Santa Claus God, or the clerk at the checkout line, or the bank teller, assuming you have anything in your account, um, then your prayers will be all about you. It'll be all self-focused. And then when you don't get what you want, you will be bitter and angry. But if... If you see God as your Father in heaven, friends, that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. And as he'll show us as we move through this prayer uh, in the coming weeks, we'll see that, yes, absolutely, we do come to him with our desires and with our needs. But it is framed by, first, his concerns and informed by his interests that then shapes all of that and puts it in its proper context. John Payton, 
um, was a 19th century missionary to cannibals in the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. In his journal, he gives an account of the day that uh, he had to say goodbye to his father as he went off on a missionary internship. I'm going to read this to you. It's a little long, but I think we've got time for it. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversations on that parting journey are as fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. Tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other with looks for which all speech was vain. We halted, reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I left him, and just at that moment I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and off by the help of God, to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it and walking away, head uncovered, have often, often, all through life, risen vividly before my mind. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a father like that. But even better, you have a father in heaven. You have a Father in heaven whose knowledge of you, His power towards you, and His love for you far outstrips, outshines, outdoes that of any, any, I know it's Mother's Day, earthly father or mother. Our Father is the King. Our Father wears a crown. Our Father sits on a throne over the cosmos. Now I ask you, how do we approach such a Father? With what confidence ought we to have? With what assurance ought we to have? What, what concerns, what ought to be our first concerns as we come and approach such a Father? Jesus says we come to our Heavenly Father in prayer. That changes the focus of our prayer. It moves our prayers. It shifts our prayers. It lifts our prayers towards concern, first concern, for His name, His rule, His will, overall, forevermore. Let's pray. 
Lord, you know how uh, how arrested our relationship is with you. How underdeveloped, how immature, how one-sided it is with you. We are so prone. This is just is our bent to make it all about us. You are not distant. You are not a dispenser. You are our Father in heaven, matchless in mercy and might toward us. We have asked you at the onset to teach us to pray, and we thank you that slowly but surely you are helping us to see that our prayers can be simple and short and straightforward, but not selfish. Godward. Beginning with your concerns, oriented to your interests, driven by your desires for the world, for your church, for us. We ask that you would help us to come as children, as what we are, as children. To come as we are with these things, your name, your rule, your will on our hearts. To come as your children, running, running to our Father, who we love because he first loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.